anyhow, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much for a sweet time of entering into your presence through song and sort of just resting for a moment there in your presence. Lord, how important for us to be doing regularly. Lord, what a blessing to know that uh, it's not just us alone entering in, but there's a, there's a whole group of us. But even outside of this room, as well as inside of this room, Lord, that are looking uh, to hear from you, that are uh, eager to hear from you. And so we thank you for your word, uh, where we can in many ways just let down our guard and receive. But we don't have to filter it through any uh, political bias or any kind of uh, bias in that way, but we can just enter in and receive and drink it in. And so, Lord, we ask that uh, you would do that work within us. Uh, you'd bless us today for having gathered uh, expectantly. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we are in the book of Micah, our second week now in the book of Micah. So uh, we're moving along. I expect we'll be here four, maybe five weeks total. So um, we'll try to continue on this sort of cumulative understanding of what it is that the Lord is speaking to us and uh, the whole overall idea and flow of this particular book, even as we take it a chapter or two at a time, we'll pick up today in chapter three. And as we do, I remind you, I will remind you that the book of Micah, much like many of the minor prophet books that we've been studying, are a series of sermons that were written down. Not all of them are like that. You recall Jonah was more of a narrative of this man's experience. But many of these books are sort of these sermons that were recorded for us. And in the book of Micah, we have three sermons and a prayer. Three sermons, one, chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 3, verse 1, and then chapter 6, verse 1. And all of them begin, all of those sermons begin with the word hear. Hear this, or I think we might say something like, all right, buddy, listen up. This is very important for you to, to hear from me. And that's how Micah begins each of these sermons. And in that opening sermon, by way of reminder, chapter 1 and chapter 2, he was calling out, the two kingdoms of the Jewish people, both Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. And what he was calling them out for was their sin of idolatry. And I, I sort of used this picture, I tried to use this picture, that idolatry in the, the Jewish kingdoms, the, the northern and southern kingdoms, became sort of the root of all of their other sin. It, it was at the heart of their sin. That was their root sin problem. But they also had in these kingdoms a fruit sin problem. How that root system sort of grew up and bare fruit in the negative sense that worked it out in the society in which they were living. And in particular, it came out in the form of corruption and oppression and the, the powerful of society abusing the weak of society. And God was not pleased by it. It was something that he took notice of in the same way as if the people were running around and having, committing adultery or they were murdering one another. He took notice of that sin, those sins, corruption, oppression, abuse of power, those kinds of things, just as much as any other sin. And he was going to bring judgment upon them for that. And our friend Micah, he points that out to us. Why were they doing these things? Because as he says in chapter 2, verse 1, they perform it, notice, because it is in, their, in the power of their hand. They were strong enough to be able to perform it. What are you going to do? How are you going to stop me? You're just some weak, poor individual. You can't stop me. And so they would abuse in that particular way. The entire nation was doing this. First sermon, 
focused on the people of Israel and Judah, the northern, or the, uh, excuse me, the, the Jewish kingdoms. It just focused on generally, this is what's going on in our society. In chapter 3, Mike is going to preach a sermon to the leaders of the people. Because in reality, as we're going to see today, the problem with the, the rank and file of society, it started with the leadership, both the political leadership and the religious leadership. And because they encouraged certain types of behavior and practiced certain types of behavior, the rest of society picked that up as well. And Mike is going to call them out for it as God leads him to. He's going to call them out for this particular sin. So a, we're, this whole book is about, what's the, the whole book about, unfortunately? It's about judgment, a judgment that is coming. That's exciting. Uh, a judgment that is coming here now. God's going to say through Micah that a coming judgment, a judgment is coming upon them. Second reason, because of the sin that had encompassed the leadership of the nation. We're going to see there's three sections. This is kind of my intro. I'm going to get there. Don't worry. There's three sections uh, in this sermon, uh, particularly in chapter three. The first Micah calls out the political leaders, the judges, those that are in charge politically because of the corruption that was under them. In uh, verses 5 through 8, he's going to call out the religious leaders, the so-called prophets of the kingdom, who prophesied based on money. You give me a large enough gift, and I'll tell you what you want to hear. He's going to call them out as well. And then in the final section of chapter 3, he's going to call both of those groups out one more time together. And so we'll dig into that. Let's get started. We'll start in verse 1. It says, And I said, Hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off of them, and break their bones in pieces, and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time, because they have made their deeds evil. So as I mentioned, he begins, notice in verse 1, he summons the heads of Jacob and the rulers of the house of Israel. These are the political leaders of the nation, or the judges of of the nation. And what does he call these judges out? He calls them out for the injustice that they had allowed to exist in the nation. And actually for being the ones that promoted it. So it wasn't just happening, they promoted an injustice in the nation. You see that in verse 1 there. He says, Is it not for you, the judges? I added that. But is it not for you to know justice? That's the whole reason why governments exist according to the scripture. To say it as the framers of our nation's constitution stated it, they said that governments exist among men to establish justice and to ensure domestic tranquility. Our founders got it right. That's why governments exist. And yet here in the book of Micah, Micah needs to turn and say to the very judges of the nation, isn't it for you to know justice? And yet it's the complete opposite. From you comes injustice, which has infiltrated our society and is destroying our society, Micah would say. And so not only aren't these leaders of Israel ensuring that justice is occurring in society, they're the ones causing injustice to happen in society. And Micah, as we see, he rebukes them for that. Notice what he says in verse 2. He says, you hate the good and you love the evil. 
Sound familiar to the society in which we live in? It certainly does. He goes on, he compares these servants of the people. In the book of Romans, it actually refers to our government officials as ministers for our good. I don't always get that impression when I look at some of our ministers for our good. And he compares them. I'm in a little bit of a mood today. I'll just get that out there from the beginning. And he compares them to a wild beast that attacks its prey. He says, they tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off of their bones. So picture, if you would, a wolf coming in and attacking a defenseless animal. Now, the picture shouldn't be that the leaders are the wolves attacking the sheep. The picture should be that the leaders are the shepherds protecting the sheep. And yet what Micah points out is they tear the skin from off of my people and their flesh from their bones. He speaks in verse 3, and he says, they devour the flesh of his people. These are the leaders God had raised up to protect and guide his people. Again, they were to be the shepherds, and instead they turned upon the people, the ones that they were called to lead. They turned upon them as fierce and ravenous wolves, and Micah calls them out for that. And so the Lord says that he's going to judge this ruling class of the Jewish people. And he says that it's going to be a judge that is so severe that when those leaders, you know, they experience that pain and they cry out to the Lord and they say, no, please make it stop, please make it stop. It says, then they will cry to the Lord, but the Lord will not answer them. And instead of answering them, it goes on to say that he's going to hide his face from them. Listen, it is a solemn thing when the leaders of God's people cause God's people to sin. And this is exactly what is going on in God's city-upon-a-hill nation in which he founded. This is the exact thing that is going on. It's the leaders that are leading the people into sin. And God says he's going to bring a judgment. The ones that should have known justice, the ones that were raised up by God to rule the nation in righteousness, are the very ones causing the masses to go astray. And God sees them for that, and he will judge them for that political leaders. I believe every one of our political leaders are answerable to God, whether they know God or don't know God. And I believe that according to the scripture. Continuing on to verse 5, Micah transitions from the political leadership to the religious leadership, the spiritual leaders of God's people. And he's going to call out what I've put in quotation marks, the prophets of Israel. He says in verse 5, Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but they declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun will go down on the prophets and the day will be black over them. The seers will be disgraced and the diviners will be put to shame. They will all cover their lips for there is no answer from the Lord, from God. So lots of prophesying going on throughout the kingdoms, plenty of thus says the Lord's that were going on amongst these so-called prophets that were there. But the pronouncements, the, the visions that these people were saying that God was giving to them were all wrong for the society. They were what they wanted to say as opposed to what the Lord would have them to say. 
And all the, the only purpose that they were serving was to lead the people astray. And so they're saying peace is coming, peace is coming, when reality, what is God saying is coming? Judgment. So let me ask you, how is that actually helping the people? They feel comfortable. They feel great. Oh, I feel so at peace because the preacher gave such a comfortable and nice message today. But there's somebody standing outside of their door that they're not prepared to encounter. How is the message of these prophets actually helping the people that they were sent to minister to or supposedly sent to minister to? It wasn't. It wasn't helping them at all. Notice also what Micah points out. He says sort of the way in which the prophets of that day ministered. So we already said that they preach peace when peace isn't coming. But notice they, they will proclaim peace if they're provided with a nice gift to do so. And so it says uh, in the particular verse, Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but they declare war against the one who puts nothing into their mouths. So you make a nice, handsome donation, I'll preach a comforting message to you. If you hold back, well, then I'm going to declare war against you. I'll turn against those who put nothing into my mouth or into their mouth. So these folks, their ministry is no longer, if it ever was, it's no longer about truth. It's no longer about communicating what God is directing their hearts to communicate. Instead, it has become now about what they could get from the ministry. I heard a story of a pastor in our community. I don't know the fellow at all. But the circumstance was such that somebody called the church because it's a church and asked for prayer. And the person talked to them a little bit and they said, let me ask you, do you, do you go to this church? No. Do you tithe to this church? No. And the response of the pastor was essentially, why are you calling us? You're not putting any money in our baskets. Now, I don't know if that story is true. I hope it is because I hate telling stories if they're not necessarily true. But that sort of an attitude does that seem like a rare thing that might occur in our society? Not at all. Not at all. What can I get from you, and then I'll minister to you? And that's what these guys are looking at. They declare peace to those that pay them well. They declare war against those who would not or could not pay. And if you ask me, that's an abuse of their position. And the Lord sees it. The Lord takes notice of it. And he says very clearly that he will judge it. Verse 6 says, Therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you, without divination. The sun will go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers will be disgraced, and the diviners will be put to shame. Like the political leaders that God judged earlier, he's going to judge now these religious leaders. Now, as we move to verse 8, he's going to begin speaking about both groups once more. And he contrasts first, though, the false prophets that he's speaking of with himself as a true prophet. Now, that sounds a little fishy um, here, but I, Micah obviously filled with the Holy Spirit. He says that, I'm filled with power, filled with the Spirit of the Lord. I'm filled with justice and might. As for me, he says, I am filled with these things. And so unlike these prophets for hire, Micah prophesied in the power of, of the Spirit of the Lord. And as such, he's able to direct, directly speak to the issue of sin. As it says in verse 8, that he can declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Because he goes to the Lord and receives these things. And since he has, he can with boldness, with confidence, 
proclaim the message that the Lord has given him, despite the fact that many of the people that were listening weren't receptive to his words. So Micah, he calls out the political leaders. He calls out the religious leaders. Looking at verse 9, he says, Hear this, you, house, uh, you heads of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. And yet they lean on the Lord and they say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster will ever come upon us. Again, they cast judgment based on who could give them the biggest bribe. That's how justice is determined. We see that in verse 11. Notice the priest. They teach, or the prophets, they teach for a price and they practice divination for a money. They would tailor their message and their ministry based upon who is financing their operation. And in both instances, the political leaders and the religious leaders, they're receiving money in order to do their particular task. That's the motivation of these leaders was to become rich off of their particular ministries. And they're wolves. They're wolves in sheep's clothing, or in this case, shepherd's clothing. And they would, they're going to use either government or religion to serve their own ends, to grow richer at the expense of the poor. And the scripture says here that the Lord is going to judge them. We know from scripture that government authority comes from the Lord. But when that government, whether it be political leaders, religious leaders, familial leaders, leaders of families, etc., when it becomes about serving self, self, such government has morphed from being good to being evil. And that's the state of things in the 8th century B.C. Israel. And so as Micah says in verse 12, he says God's going to overthrow then those leaders, the seat of government. He says Zion. Zion's another name for Jerusalem. This is where their political leaders led, as well as it was the place of the mountain of the Lord or the house of the Lord that refers to the temple mount area or the temple on the mount that it was built from where the religious leaders led. Verse 12 says, therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house will be a wooded height. The one who is holy and true was not going to allow iniquity to continue unjudged in his land and thus he's going to use this foreign invader that is going to come in and begin to lead the people astray into captivity again Micah prophesied somewhere this prophecy somewhere around the year 740 735 BC by 722 BC the Assyrians had entered in and they had taken captive the northern kingdom you can read about this uh, in our scriptures here it's around first kings I think 28 or so where they're going to go, or Chronicles, they're going to go a little bit further down into the southern kingdom, and the king cries out in repentance. And God gives the southern kingdom a reprieve. And the leader of the Assyrians, a fellow by the name of Sennacherib, he turns. Instead of continuing to go down into the south, he turns and he heads back. But the northern kingdom is taken into captivity in 722 B.C., just as our friend Micah here is pointing out that this captivity is coming. And why is it coming? Well, we saw in the first chapter because of the un injustice that was prevalent throughout society. Why, why is it coming? Well, according to chapter 3, because the leaders, 
were so far from the Lord. And they, they not only allowed it to happen in their society, they promoted it, causing it to happen in their society. Their leaders were so far astray. Now, when your leaders, Josh kind of prayed this sort of a prayer. When, when your society seems so far from heaven, what does it cause you to do as a follower of Christ? It causes you to long for heaven. When your leaders seem so far from the Lord, what does it cause you to do? Oh, Lord, come. Set up your righteous kingdom. Right? Does that make sense? Is that logical where I'm going with that? Well, that's where Micah goes in chapter 4. And he begins to talk about that day when there will be a righteous ruler in Israel, where he will set up his throne and he will rule and he will reign in righteousness and that the entire earth will be blessed by his reign. Chapter 4 transitions into that, this coming of God's true ruler. So again, what we're seeing here in our study of the book of Micah and, and in all of the minor prophets is you have this message of judgment which sort of is, is clear, it's happening, it's going to be here, it's just a matter of time, but then this message of hope that is tacked, tacked on to that at the end. When that judgment has served its purpose, here's the hope. You'll return to the land, the Messiah will come, you know, all these kinds of ideas here. And once more, he does that again. And so, as one commentator said, he's been preaching about sort of a grievous retribution. Well, now he's going to turn to a glorious restoration. Starting in chapter 4, he'll talk about what is called the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. You've probably heard of the millennium. This is the 1,000-year righteous reign of Jesus on the earth. It's still future, obviously, to where we are today. It starts in chapter 4.1. Let's read. It says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, that's the temple, will be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted above the, up above the hills, and peoples will flow to it. And many nations will come, and they'll say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. Some of you may have sung that song. If you've ever been to a Messianic Jewish fellowship, you probably danced around and kicked your feet to that particular song. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Verse 3, he shall judge between many peoples, and he will decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither will they learn war anymore. But they will sit every man under his vine and everyone under, everyone under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Now, isn't that like a breath of fresh air? Okay. You're like, I can't tell. I got this mask on. You know, I don't know anything about fresh air. It's a breath of fresh air in the light of what we've been reading about uh, the corruption. So let's say you are a moral, upstanding individual of society, and you can't get justice in the society in which you live. It just doesn't operate. It just doesn't work that way particular way in that particular society there's going to be a longing in your heart God just right the wrongs Micah says that day is coming and he speaks of all these wonderful things that we see here where uh, nation will not go to war against nation they're going to beat their swords into plowshares all these sorts of things I'm so I suspect that was familiar words to some of you you've heard those words before those words are etched into the stone 
of the United Nations building. I think we have a little photo of it here. See, I'm not lying. That's, you don't know what building that is, but that's the United Nations building. Those words are etched into the stone of that particular building. That's the noble goal, apparently, of the United Nations, that this organization will be able to be an organization that promotes peace in the world, and we can beat our swords into plowshares, and everything will be great and wonderful, and uh, we'll be able to enjoy our fig trees and all these other things that are mentioned here. There's a serious problem, however, with that, uh, that picture there and with those words that are etched into the stone of that particular building because whereas they talk about swords being beaten into plowshares, is that a good thing? Sure it is. And their spears being turned into pruning hooks and nation not lifting up sword against nation and not having to learn war anymore. All of that is wonderful, but the problem, as I said, is this, it leaves out what will be the cause of that glorious day of peace, which is in the the earlier portion of the verse that they put up there, which is that the Lord himself is going to rule and reign in righteousness, with the result being there'll be no more war, and we can beat our swords into plowshares, and so on and so forth. And so as noble as the United Nations goal might be, there will not be, and indeed there never can be, true world peace until the Prince of Peace returns and reigns upon the earth. And so after having just called out Israel's leaders for their corruption and greed, what Micah does now is he turns his attention, look in verse 1, in hope, he turns it to the latter days. He turns it to when the mountain of the house of the Lord, and back in verse 12, that's the temple area there, so Uh, righteousness is going to reign from Jerusalem when he says that that mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of the mountains, hills, mountains, those things are government in the scriptures. And so the highest of all mountains will be established in Jerusalem where Christ will set up his throne. And so though there is a day coming when the city of Jerusalem will be destroyed, as a result of their sin. Micah's been talking about it. Micah looks further beyond that near prophecy to a far prophecy. He looks beyond the day of destruction to the day when the city itself will be rebuilt and established as the highest of all of the kingdoms, of all mountains, where people, he says, from the world over will flow into that city to worship the Lord. As verse 2 says, where they will be taught his ways and so that they might walk in his paths. And then, and only then, will righteousness and peace reign upon the earth. And how could it not when Jesus Christ is seated on his throne? Would you agree? Amen. Then will justice truly reign down. As Micah's contemporary Amos said, Amos said this, let justice roll down like the waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That can only occur when Christ himself is seated on a throne. We can certainly strive for it on the earth. We can hope for it. We can work for those types of things. But it will never truly come until Christ rules and reigns. Now, verse 3, acting as the complete antithesis of those other rulers, he says that this king will judge between many peoples. And he'll decide disputes for strong nations far away. Again, they're going to beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation's not going to lift up sword against nation any longer. And they're not even going to have to learn war. 
the righteous judge is going to rule and reign and he's going to do so in righteousness judging between the nations and so on and so forth that we see here and look at verse 4 with the risk of violence gone with the risk of war removed from the earth true peace and prosperity will flourish on the earth probably like it has never from the day since the days of eden look what micah says in verse 4 they shall set Every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken this. The United States budgeted last year $686 billion to the Department of Defense, and that was last year alone. In that same year, Russia budgeted $65.1 billion. If you believe their numbers, China budgeted $178 billion. Germany budgeted $49.3 billion, and Israel spent over $20 billion, Israel the size of New Jersey, spent over $20 billion in its defense budget. Five nations that I mentioned there, and if you add all those figures together, $998 billion from just five of the world's countries was spent on their defense in the last year. Just imagine the impact all of that money could have, it's a trillion dollars essentially, if it could be invested into other areas of our society. And I'm not a dreamer, it can't be. Because if you start to, then the evil people of the world, the, the truly evil people of the world will take advantage of those nations that are ill-prepared. But there is coming a day where a trillion dollars a year from five nations can be invested into every other area of society in which that money needs to be invested. Again, in that day, the words of Micah, a freedom from want will hit the world not known since the days of Eden. And that which societies have striven to attain will finally be experienced and realized, and it will do so for this 1,000-year period of time, which will be marked by the personal presence of the Lord himself. This is a glorious prophecy on the part of Micah. Right in the middle of this particular sermon, the sermon goes all the way through chapter 5, or at least a good portion of chapter 5, and right in the middle of it, he's been speaking about judgment, he gives this glorious prophecy about the return of Jesus Christ and the righteous reign of Jesus Christ, and it's the golden age of world history, even though it'll be future from where we are right now. A society where Jerusalem will be exalted, and from which the Lord will rule all the nations. Worldwide disarmament will, final, disarmament will finally occur, and peace and security will prevail upon the earth. That'll be a glorious kingdom, wouldn't it indeed be? Well, Micah continues, speaking about that day, verse 5, he says, All the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. He says, in that day, declares the Lord, I'll assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come. Kingship for the daughter of of Jerusalem. So Micah here, he contrasts the idolatry that was practiced in his day, in our day, with the true and pure worship that will prevail in that day in the millennial kingdom. 
And he speaks again, once more, he did it back in chapter 2, but he speaks again of the remnant. The remnant that the Lord will assemble in that day and how the Lord is going to make from that remnant those Israelites that had been driven off into captivity or driven off into dispersion, the diaspora, he will bring them back, the remnant that he will bring back, and from that remnant will make a strong nation. As he says in verse 7, that he himself will rule and reign over from this time forth and forevermore. So track real quickly with Micah's message. He begins by rebuking the people for their failure to do what it was they were commissioned to do, the leaders to do what it was they were commissioned to do. The judges had failed to give justice. The prophets had failed to speak the true word from God. The rulers had ceased to rule with equity. And as a result of all of that, the kingdom was descending into chaos. And so an even greater judgment, even the chaos itself was part of the judgment of God. But a greater judgment was going to come upon this nation. That, however, is not God's final word to his people. And so naturally, Micah is compelled to include a section ending this particular prophecy of a coming golden age for the people of Israel, for the whole world in reality. And so it's true that judgment would come and that Jerusalem would fall and that the people would be taken off into captivity and scattered, but God would regather a remnant of his people and bring them back to Jerusalem where he would rule over them forevermore from Mount Zion. First, however, sin had to be purged from the nation. So we can look way into the future. We see what's going to occur, but sin had to be purged from the nation. And so beginning again in verse 9, Micah returns to that prophecy of the near coming judgment. And he does so by comparing the nation to a woman in labor, who at the end of the pain that has seized her is able to experience the joy of holding the newborn child. Notice in verse 9, now, why do you cry aloud? Well, someone's in labor because it hurts. Why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? He says, writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion. The, the idea is continue in your pain. O daughter of Zion, the judgment is going to come. The captivity is going to come. Like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go off to Babylon. Again, notice, for now you will go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go off into Babylon. In about 100 years from Micah's prophecy, starting around the year 605 B.C., the Assyrians are no longer a world-ruling empire. A new ruling empire, the Babylonians, have turned their sights on the city of Jerusalem, on the southern kingdom of the Jewish people. 605 B.C., Micah prophesied around anywhere from about 740 to 685 or so. So let's just put this in the middle. His prophecy here is somewhere around 715 or so. In about 100 years, these Babylonians are going to come in, just as Micah says there in verse 10. And they're going to lead the southern kingdom into captivity. And he uses, by comparison, the difficulty of the coming captivity, he compares that to childbirth, while the joy of holding the newborn is compared to the time of restoration that is promised to God's people. Notice how he finishes verse 10 there. He says, there shall, from there you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. The Lord would send them to Babylon, but the Lord would not leave them in Babylon. And so even as he is foretelling of Jerusalem's fall, 
the ensuing deportation, he can't help but speak of the time of Israel's future restoration. For hundreds and hundreds of and hundreds of years, the nation was playing around with idolatry. We've seen that, we've studied that, we've talked about it here uh, at our, in our gathering times. You've read your scriptures, you know that. There's up and down in the nation where someone comes in, sort of cleans things up, everything sort of is comfortable and at peace, and then people gradually begin to introduce the idolatry once more. And for hundreds of years, they'd been playing around with it. Now God is going to send them off into captivity to the place that has been referred as the idolatry capital of the world. You want your idolatry? Take your idolatry. Have your idolatry. And the people of Israel, they become sick of their idolatry. When they finally do come back into the land, they, they never really return as a people to their idolatry. Not in the sense of building their idols and dancing around them and all that is associated with that. God had delivered them over to the center of idolatry so that he could purge it from within them. Grow so sick of their idols that they finally will be healed of their propensity toward idolatry. God is using his judgment, even harsh judgment, to bring the people to their senses so that they might return. As God always intends with his discipline, he would use his discipline to bring the people to the place of restoration. So again, he speaks of a coming judgment. He then looks past that near prophecy to the far prophecy of the coming millennial kingdom in which God's remnant is gathered once more to the land. Now as we come to verse 11, he's going to prophesy of two additional events that will be sandwiched in between those events. And so we have the captivities, we have the prophecy of the millennial kingdom. There's going to be a third and fourth event that are sandwiched between them. They're much closer to the millennium than they are to the captivities. And these are going to be the events of the tribulation. You've probably heard that term before. And the battle of Armageddon. Maybe you've heard that term before. It starts in verse 11. It says, Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let her eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I'll make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Chapter 5, verse 1, Now muster your troops, O daughters of, uh, daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With the rod they strike the judge of Israel on his cheek. Again, there's going to be this final day of restoration that will come for the people of Israel. In the near future, there'll be the captivity. In the far future, there will be this glorious kingdom where Christ will reign on the earth. And in between those, there's going to be this time of great trial that will come to a close with the physical return of Jesus Christ and the battle of Armageddon or the Armageddon campaign. And Micah, he only writes a couple of verses about it. I think it was four, maybe that I read, three or four verses that he read, that I read. We have about 14 chapters on the tribulation in the book of Revelation. I'll let you read those for yourselves, but I want to read a portion of it. This is from Revelation chapter 19. So if you have your Bibles and you want to turn to Revelation 19, I'm going to read about 10, 12 verses here. Um, so it's kind of a long time to sit and sort of listen without looking. But Revelation chapter 19, last book of your Bible, second or third to the last chapter of the Bible. 
we have a greater amplification of the couple of verses that Micah gives us in chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. I'm going to pick up in verse 11. Again, you can read from chapter 6 of Revelation to chapter 18 of Revelation if you want to read about the tribulation. It's in those chapters. But here in chapter 19, verse 11, it says, And then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. I guess we could all guess who that is, right? That's Christ. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God, the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, as John says in his Gospel. Verse 14, the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. You know who that is? That's his saints. That's me. I'm going to someday start taking horse riding lessons so I can be ready in heaven. Um, here, arrayed in, in fine linen, white and pure. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. John is going to go on from there, starting in verse 17. He's going to talk about the coming battle. And the place previously in chapter 16, he told us that battle was at this wide open field called Megiddo. And so this is the battle of Megiddo, or we call it uh, typically the battle of Armageddon. Starting in verse 17, I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. He said, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, their riders. And the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. The idea is many are going to die in this particular battle. Verse 19, and I saw the beast. Now, earlier in the book of Revelation, we learned the beast is the Antichrist. He says, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with him the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. John will tell us in chapter 20 that this captured beast and this false prophet, the Antichrist, and this false religious leader of the last days, the tribulation period of time, that they're going to be bound in that lake of fire that he pointed out earlier for a thousand years. Look what he says in chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended, and after that he will be released for a little while. Notice how it coincides exactly with a thousand years where Satan will be bound and his deceptiveness of the nations will be bound, essentially, and Christ will rule and reign upon the earth. That's what Mike is talking about in this 
interlude in the middle. We didn't finish the entire sermon, but in the middle of this sermon here in chapter 4 of the book of Micah, he's talking about this time of righteous, the righteous reign of Jesus Christ. Again, the thousand years, we call it the millennial kingdom. And our hearts should long for that day. Do I like living here on the Assure? Of course, I like my family. I like seeing what God's doing in their lives and how they're growing and all those kinds of stuff. And I like, you know, not the Eagles. I was going to say I like watching football, um, not, not in this year. Uh, you know, but I like experiencing things and all that goes with it. Of course I do. But my heart longs for heaven. And I hope yours does as well. I hope your heart longs for the day when righteousness will reign, not only in your life, but in the lives of everyone that are around you. That's what this world was created to be. Unfortunately, sin has entered in. And sin has entered into our lives, and we need to deal with it, folks. We can't allow it to just sort of sit in our lives and sort of take up residence in our lives and minimize the significance in our lives. The Scripture says, be holy as he is holy. Be set apart unto him and his ways as he is set apart unto him and his own ways here. And give ourselves to him in every area. So I just want to encourage you. You may not be as wicked as some of these people that we're reading about and the things that are going on in that society. And there's the temptation whenever we come to the scripture to sort of picture other people. Uh-huh, that's that guy, and that's that guy, and that's that guy. And God's going to get them someday. Let the word of God speak to you. And if it's a minor little area in your life, relatively speaking to the rest of society, it's a major area when it's brought into the presence of the Lord. And so if the Lord is speaking to you about an area of your life, not just this morning, but he has been speaking to you about an area of sin in your life, an area of unrighteousness in your life, can I encourage you, even as I want to encourage myself, give it over to him and say, Lord, root it out of me. Reign in every area of my life before this thing becomes so significant because I've gotten used to disobeying you. Lord, I want to obey you even in the smallest of things. And the Lord sees that. The Lord honors that. The Lord blesses that. Amen? Would you agree? And so with that, we'll bring to a close our study this morning. I want to encourage you to continue to read ahead. We're going to read next week about the first coming of Jesus Christ. You know the verse, Blessed are you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah. Though you're the smallest among the nations from you, will come this righteous judge, that's the first coming of Jesus Christ. I probably hammered the verse. I didn't probably get the words too accurate, but you weren't looking, so you don't know. Um, anyway, let's pray together. Father, we, we do rejoice in the first coming of Jesus Christ. The only reason we can be together, really gathered together in this room, sinners as we are, is because you poured out your judgment on another, on Jesus Christ, and you moved in our hearts to receive from you the gift of salvation, to recognize our need for a Savior and to cry out to you, the only one that can save us from our sins. And so we rejoice in your first coming. And Lord, we long, even still now, for your second coming. I think of the way the book of Revelation ends. It ends with that phrase, Maranatha, even so come, Lord Jesus. And so, Lord, reign in our hearts during our remaining days here on the earth. And give us a greater hunger for your righteous reign over all the earth, which we look forward to eagerly. Bless us as your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.